must speak the truth about terror. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. What happens? I tell you what happens. Blam! I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw... No collusion! Shit's getting way too complicated for me. Welcome to The Antidote. This is Greg McCarran. And this is Jeremy Rothkuschel. Uh, Jeremy, we are recording on Sunday, February 27th, and as I'm sure everybody in our audience knows, um, the, the big news of the past week has happened since the last time we recorded, and after several, after a few months of nonstop speculation, will it happen, won't it happen, I believe Wednesday night it was official, Russia has invaded uh, Ukraine. So um, obviously uh, we um, here at The Antidote uh, – like to bring our own, I, would, I think, unique um, form of uh, analysis and discussion to this topic. And um, I guess there's a lot on both of our minds here as we'll get it going forward. This is actually going to be a series where we're going to um, not only discuss like the some of like the current events, but try to get into like a deeper uh, context in terms of um, aspects of, of Ukraine and our own politics and how our own politics, because as Americans, we don't know what's going on on, on the ground in Ukraine. I don't want to try to claim that I do, but as Americans, we can understand how our own system and the um, events that have happened in our, uh, in our own political sphere have uh, directly in a lot of ways led to uh, the things we're seeing right now at a geopolitical level. Uh, we could analyze it from that regard. So we're going to try to do through a deeper uh, discussion of um, aspects of uh, Ukraine, Russia, geopolitically, and then also from like the perspective of like our own politics and uh, how they fit into this uh, moment that we're in right now. But um, I guess we could start out, uh, Jeremy, just uh, maybe uh, give a bit of a general thought of a, uh, what you're feeling, your, where your mind is on this, then we could get into a discussion. I guess the combination of talking about in this first part of what will be a series, uh, getting into some of the elements of like the propaganda surrounding some of the media narratives, and then also um, what you see as some of the uh, threats that are um, lingering as a result of this in numerous capacities that could have an effect uh, um, in a number of, of different ways in very, um, very uh, fateful ways. So I guess I'll let you uh, just give general feelings if you want to, then we'll get into having this discussion. Thank you, Greg. And so, yes, there's such a, a wide array here to digest that I, that we both may think that it makes sense to do a deep dive into both how we got here, a, a, a more a compre- as much as of a comprehensive approach to how we got here as, as we can muster, while also... Uh, attempting to analyze what is here, what is going on, what is the, what are the potential outcomes, what are the dangers and the threats that are apparently escalating right now. And then, and then how then maybe could this be resolved? And then what does it, how, as you pointed out, how does this tie in to a lot of the threads that we've been pushing on over the, since the, basically the birth of the antidote in 2016? And the, you know, we, there, there's a lot here, obviously. So one thing that we will be tracing is specifically how this, this immediate escalation, this invasion by Russia into Ukraine has 
many different pieces of the background. Now we'll we'll do a uh, a generalized geopolitical analysis as we move forward in this series that will include the some of the best maybe realist critiques of the uh, the U.S. role geopolitically in all of this uh, that comes maybe from someone like uh, John Mearsheimer, um, who acknowledges actually in his talk about this, I think it was back in 2015, that he's sort of virtually alone in a certain way by pushing back against what he what he calls like the liberal American uh, foreign policy establishment. And I would actually just point out that he's at some level, he's actually really talking about the neocons, what we would call the paleo neocons, people like Victoria Newland, the Kagans, who really sought to utilize the what they called the unipolar moment, especially post uh, uh, the, 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 the 90s after the end of the Soviet Union. And then especially then supercharged by September 11th to create a dynamic where the United States would um, utilize its power, like the way they would talk about it. What good is having this massive military, this powerful military, if you don't use it? That was what the neocon consensus, both the paleo neocons uh, that we that we call in terms of we'll talk about them as the uh, America first neocons, the the K- the the Kagans, the Newlands, the Bill Crystals, the David Frums, uh, from the people who we haven't yet figured out what to call them, the neo neocons, the new neocons, the uh, the the Russo Israeli neocons. There's it's not quite clear exactly what to title them, but what their consensus was was that especially post nine eleven, time to use the U.S. military uh, and its and its power in order to extend and influence what they saw as the unipolar moment. And so that's what Mearsheimer then uh, deals with in his uh, talks around that time. And then there's also uh, an article, his paper about it, it's titled Why the Ukraine Crisis is the West's Fault, the Liberal Delusions that Provoked Putin by John Mearsheimer. And so there's that, that we'll use that as the most credible mm, factual analysis, the least weaponized, I would say, analysis of that side of the equation in terms of the, the use of NATO, what, what Mearsheimer identifies as quote unquote democracy promotion. Now, of course, what what the problem with Mearsheimer always is, and that includes in the in uh, the, the his book with Walt about the Israel lobby, as we've pointed out when we've actually read from it and digested it, is there's a virtually total absence of deep politics. So the promotion of democracy, quote unquote, it's not it was not real. It wasn't there was not what was deeply actually going on. And but he sort of leaves all of these surface levels uh, undigested. However, he articulates the some of the the actual geopolitical conundrum here, and the and the from the U.S. West side of things, the, their involvement in the manufacturing of uh, of this crisis. Okay, and there's a lot of truth to that too. We'll then also then take on the 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 actual Putin Russian 
articulation of what Putin believes he's actually doing and why he believes he's justified in doing what he's doing, which actually I would immediately point people to uh, John Swin's really important work right now on his YouTube channel, uh, Expose the Enemy, where he's just recently put out a, a very interesting docu a, a mini documentary about the apparent long-term dehumanization or really the sort of the attempted um, geopolitical cultural genocide approach to the, to the Ukrainians from this aspect of the Russian component. And, and he delves into questions of even uh, Vladislav Surkov and the, the use of mass-scale, chaotic narrative warfare where, as opposed to maybe what the, as, as we were talking about earlier, Greg, of like the, the Mossad's uh, apparent slogan of, by deception thou shalt wage, wage war, this is something more like a by by way of uh, of chaos of sowing uh, epistemological uh, opacity basically by by it's it's a way of 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 sowing confusion rather in in using deception at times but also using the truth uh, sometimes in, in order to uh, to wage to wage chaos as we pointed out in terms of the RT position in the West yep. actually involves something around speaking certain uncomfortable truths up to a point while weaponizing even the truth in order to sow political yeah. chaos. Yeah, taking advantage of um, multiple areas of legitimate um, critiques and um, around like the American, you know, our system or government corruption, um, et cetera, but then also um, weaponizing them, I think, in a lot of ways out of proportion and basically using it as a weapon ultimately to um, just sow as much discord and um, division in society as possible, the means of actually um, using these legitimate issues and luring people in and bringing people in as far as like, well, here's an outlet that tells the truth. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, Abby Martin saying, if I have to go to Russian state media to tell the truth about my country, I'll do it. And so that comes with a double-edged sword of, yeah, well, there's you can tell some truth on your show, but at the same time, like the people, the, the purveyors of this who are putting this out there are using it for much different purposes, as I think uh, it's pretty safe to say. So. Great point. And, and, and as we've also spoken about over and over again, is that the, there's certain truths, for example, that someone like Abby Martin was able to uh, speak on Russia today. And while she still to this day has never really done a, a, a public reckoning with the the framing or the usage of even quote unquote dissenting truth telling or uh, on a Russian state uh, media platform, which is obviously has some kind of propagandistic intent. It would be like, it would be like rejecting a, an analysis of someone who sort of turns to more independent alt media from having worked at the voice of America, like saying like, oh, there, there's no propaganda, not analyzing the propaganda component of the voice of America. You, you sort of got to do it. Like there's something there. It's like, all right, maybe you're spitting truth to some extent, but then what is the reason? What is the reason for the platforming of your truth that you're spitting by this uh, obvious sort of state propaganda uh, establishment? And then we also pointed out that there was, there are certain truths you couldn't say on RT. 
and that have become explicit now. And Greg, you've done a, you've been the one who've, who's noticed and historically taken account for these very specific little sort of openings of this Russian deep state media component in terms of people like John Kiriakou, the uh, alleged CIA whistleblower um, who actually worked sort of under this Cheney component during the early war on terror uh, and now went to Sputnik Radio, I, I believe, and uh, and has done a show with with uh, the former Breitbart uh, man, Lee Stranahan, who, by the way, go look at his recent shows. What's it called? The Backstory? He is- uh, Yes, The Backstory. He is more unhinged than I've ever seen him. He seems to be slurring words and on the verge of incoherent, but the only thing that's clear is that he totally supports Putin now. And so he's sort of like the id of the sort of the Russian- uh, the Russian assets in the American media. I think you could sort of see the, the real pure id of all of that. Um, but Kiriakou, you noticed, Greg, that Kiriakou was reporting on that his, the peop, the bureaucrats, the managers of RT had very specific lines in the sand around what kinds of truth could be talked about. And something like 9-11 was yeah. where it really existed. Ground zero on 9-11 specifically. It was a Sputnik, and it was a Mendia Gavashelli, who he mentioned by name, who I believe is the um, American head. Sputnik, as far as like, has a lot of influence over the American um, operation at Sputnik. I'm going by memory based on um, we'll link the we'll, we'll link back to the article in the New Republic where it was this interview with Kiriakou, but he mentioned uh, basically that um, according to Mendia Gavashelli by name, like uh, you know the the uh, the truth stuff that just don't don't bring don't bring nine eleven truth stuff into our channel. Basically, paraphrasing. And we'll we will th- there. I believe there steer clear of nine eleven truthers is what he was quoted as saying. He was told to steer clear of nine eleven truthers. And and it's obvious too. Like even like in my brief interactions with calling into the uh, fault lines radio show that is also hosted on local terrestrial radio in the Kansas City area. It's still to this day. Um, at that point it was, uh, Lee Stranahan and, uh, and Garland Nixon, I believe that there, they, there were certain obvious places they couldn't go. They would be willing to talk about the celebrating Israeli, uh, the, that aspect of, of 9-11. But then when you go to the core of ground zero and, uh, forensics of who, might have been responsible for destroying these buildings in actuality with the living human beings inside of them on live television. That's where it was obvious that there was a line there in terms of where the Sputnik overseers were comfortable with. And so there's a lot of potential reasons for this. And this then leads into, we will go into, we'll, uh, read a little bit from the Putin interviews, which is the book that was put out as an addendum for Oliver Stone's long form interviews that was hosted on Showtime. Um, the foreword, interestingly, is by Robert Shear, uh, formerly uh, of the Ramparts way back and now has his own outlet. But there's a lot of interesting pieces here. I think actually more specific material about some of these questions about Putin and 9-11, Putin and Bush at the time, 
uh, Putin's relationship to uh, to looking at Al Qaeda that actually help I think uh, help us understand why the at front coming from the commanding heights of the of the Russian state why there are is this very hard line uh, against really pursuing what you might think of, of that would be used by the Russian state to undermine the American government more than basically anything is like, let's, let's pursue it to the root of who actually staged September 11th on American soil and why, and why, and who in, in maybe high up in the American government. And then obviously who high up in the Israeli government might've been part of it. And then you begin to then sort of see these very strange Russian components surrounding some of the logistics, uh, especially in, in, in the Manhattan component uh, of it. And uh, so there's that. But then there's also this question, which will then we will delve into the uh, Alexander Litvinenko and Yuri Felshtinsky book, Blowing Up Russia, the fake bombings that launched Putin, that will then feed in directly to some of the potential threats that I see at this moment. And so I will mention right now that that I just wanted to quickly go through the threat landscape right now. It looks to me like Putin, and this will be when we do a longer form on the the background of uh, of the um, what Putin has actually spoken and written about his view of Ukraine. For example, one is, it's called Putin's, uh, it was a, an essay that he wrote uh, last middle of last year, 2001. It's a 5,000 word article titled on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. And you can get a little bit more of this uh, deeper historical background by wa watching John Swin's uh, recent video about uh, about some of this but we'll get into some of that uh, and and to me it looks like putin very likely was had been openly threatening to to basically go in and what he's calling demilitarizing and denazifying ukraine and geopolitically what that might mean is that he in this article i believe he says okay if we're not given what we want in terms of these security uh, um, uh, assurances in relationship to Ukraine and NATO. Uh, and, and the NATO aspect is just a, a, um, a more surface level aspect of this. What's deeper is what John Swin's moving into here, which is this much longer term attempt to erase Ukraine from its own uh, individual uh, cultural nationality in many ways in relationship to even the obviously early Soviets, the, the Stalin and the, and the questions of the Holodomor, which there's a lot of controversy there. And we probably should get into some historical reading around that. But even before that, uh, there was already even in relationship to the czar. Uh, and even before that, there was always some kind of, uh, a, an assault and a controversy around the U, the Ukrainians uh, and whether they are their own people and all of these kinds of uh, all of these kinds of uh, things. But in this essay, it looks like Putin calls for basically if we are not giving these assurances, 
then Ukraine will have to be returned to its 1922 borders is what it looks like. And so it, it, to me, it looks like that it, that the, the military strategy here was to uh, go in, obviously Putin first recognizes uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. And we'll, we'll go into some of the background there of the, this Eastern side of it, which is at the location of the, you know, of a lot of the hostilities that have been going on over the last uh, almost decade now, uh, and and then the deeper political aspect of how that evolved and how that was manufactured in Ukraine. Uh, but it looks like Putin is is attempting to go in and basically uh, remove the current uh, government in Ukraine, siphon back off the east. To, to actually direct Russian control and then leave what would be might be called a Ukrainian sort of rump state of some sort that could then be uh, called a neutral state uh, as a uh, quote-unquote buffer zone to NATO. That's what it looks like to me that, that, that Putin was actually after. Now, it looks like the, we don't know what's coming next now, and this is where there's some a lot of danger in this moment. Obviously, anytime you have... NATO and the U.S. and the West facing off in a very, very direct proxy war of some sort. It's almost on the edge of not even a proxy war at this point. This is not like Vietnam or even Afghanistan at some level, because this is right there in terms of of Russia in in a European context. That this you have the you have big nuclear powers, and so there is the very obvious question of nuclear escalation. And so just this morning, we, that's what we're uh, seeing that the, the NATO, the United States and the West has now come to basically cutting off Russia in a very severe sanctions, economic sanctions that can, that are, that go beyond just the oligarchs and certain uh, financial elite and financial systems, but even into the Russian government where Putin himself and Lavrov and uh, and then the military leadership are all uh, targets of the sanctions too. And then all additionally, this question of the SWIFT, um, which is basically the, the banking system, the banking, the global banking communication system uh, being Russia being cut off. And so this morning, I believe uh, in, in Russia runs on the ATMs. There is even the oligarchs. Some some of the oligarchs are taking big moves. For example, Roman Abramovich, who we've talked about a lot in the in the past, who is also currently apparently the still the richest man, uh, the richest Israeli citizen, who uh, uh, owns the uh, Chelsea or had owned the Chelsea uh, soccer football club, as they call it over there, soccer club. He has transferred. The holding of it, it looks like he stepped away from the holding of it, probably to immunize, try to immunize himself from these uh, escalation of these sanctions. Um, and, and even uh, Deripaska, Oleg Deripaska, who's at the epicenter actually of the deep politics behind all of this, including Manafort, Paul Manafort, and his whole deep role in Ukraine, and we'll then explore that too, because that's that's there's some aspect 
of this moment that is just directly a continuity of the 11-9 operation, which was uh, a long-term, a long-term operation in many ways. And Manafort at the epicenter of Trump, what was called Trump Russia, but we call 11-9 in order to fully uh, comprehend the transnational components of it, and especially to reincorporate how strongly there was American domestic uh, elements involved in, in it long term, but also Middle Eastern, especially Israeli components in this uh, to be to be fully uh, defined. And then even some of the children of the oligarchs and the Russian oligarchs are are speaking out about how this needs to be resolved. And so th- this morning also, it looks like that Putin has, inst- as a response to, uh, to, the, uh, to, the we- to the West, basically his, has, uh, they've raised their, basically the, the Russian version of DEFCON, they've raised it to an elevated level and including calling it, I think it's called a... Um, so they have they have four uh, levels. They have con- one constant, two elevated, three military danger, and four full, which is similar to our DEFCON levels in the United States. And so Putin has put them on ready and 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 uh, escalated it to the second level, which would be elevated. Um, and then what you can see very interesting is that uh, the announcement of it is Putin sitting there and then next to him, not that close next to him. And as people are noticing, like there, it doesn't look like anyone gets close to Putin these days. It seems like it's been months since there's been someone who's even like next to Putin and that he, whenever he's meeting with people, he's really far away from them. Uh, even when he met with his, his, uh, security cabinet in the, in the early day, the early days, earlier this week of launching the invasion, they were all far away from him in these chairs. And you notice a lot of uh, diff, uh, uh, dissatisfaction at the very least and a lot of uncomfortableness in body language and facial um, features and, and then also even in terms of what's being vocalized by some of this other Russian uh, quote-unquote leadership around Putin. They seem there's a lot of discomfort. And so next to Putin, when he's announcing the raising of the the nuclear uh, readiness, and I believe it's also, it's called a special, uh, it's like a special operations or a special um, forces uh, stance is part of what seems to be uh, that Putin has um, uh, ordered. That next, that sort of, that, that to Putin's right, I think, are, are the two main Millet, his two main military leaders, and one is uh, Shoigu, who is the basically the the head of the uh, uh, basically the defense secretary. I think I think is sort of his, or, or he's actually the commander of the armed forces in total. And then and then next to him is uh, Gerasimov, who is who the uh, so called Gerasimov doctrine. Uh, it's not really a a, a doctrine. Um, but we've, we've, we've talked, we've sort of unpacked some of this before, actually, if people are interested they might want to go back to, uh, shows where we dealt with Sirkov and Gerasimov, uh, and in relationship to the geopolitics during the Trump years. But so then 
the Gerasimov is there too, and Gerasimov is the the um, the head of the general staff, basically, uh, of uh, for Putin. And you see Shoigu's face is he's very he's almost angry, maybe he's definitely uncomfortable with what Putin is doing. And so when you combine all of these factors, you get a sense of like Putin's actually beginning to be isolated even more at some level. He's even the, the Russian soldiers at the front line. Some of them are real young uh, conscripts and they, they weren't even told that they were going in for an actual invasion. And this of course is how Putin staged a lot of this was as drills. This was just military drills. And up until the day of the invasion, uh, there was the whole crew of people that we've been dealing with in terms of Trump Russia and their total denial of the basic facts and analysis of that. The 11 9 uh, liars, we might call them. They were deni- They were basically saying that the, the U.S. is just gaslighting and NATO is just lying about any real threat of a Russian invasion up until it happened. And, uh, and so th- those people need to be looked at again in terms of uh, how wrong they got this. And maybe it's also the case that they got the actual 11-9 truth and the actual Trump-Russia investigation even more wrong uh, in terms of their ongoing denial of how real all of that was and how it was way, way worse and way deeper than, of course, MSNBC and CNN, especially CNN, were, uh, were telling the American uh, people. And so in this way, this is really the continuity of, uh, of that operation in many ways. So th- there is also then talk of a potential f- of a talk of a, uh, a negotiation between uh, the Ukrainian president uh, Zelensky and, and Russian, it is probably not Putin himself, but, but Russian officials to be it looks like it's to be hosted by uh, Belarus, actually, which is not really neutral terrain at this point, as even like the this invasion is partially being launched from Belar- Bela- Belarus. Um, but it, it's beginning to be there's a lot of pressure now from, quote unquote, both sides to deescalate this thing and uh, and 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 end it, at least for now, before things get really crazy. And for example, the Russians seems to have ha- had a little bit, they, they seem to have been pursuing some kind of blitzkrieg, you might call it, from the, from the, the Nazi warfare doctrine of, of uh, going in really, really hard and fast and de- de- sort of, th- you know, shock and awe in that way of that time and, uh, and uh, decapitation kinds of moves and they look like they've been, the Russians have been held back. But meanwhile, then there looks to be escalations now and the Russians have only involved maybe third to two fifths of their armed forces that they've gathered at the uh, Ukrainian borders who have actually gone into Ukraine at this point. And they look to the Russian military looks to be escalating also towards moving in uh, thermobaric weapons, which is basically uh, instead of uh, basic munitions that then sort of uh, explode in one place, this basically, the thermobaric weapons, which, by the way, were uh, first introduced into the battlefield by the U.S. military in Vietnam and then used uh, in the war on terror, uh, including in Afghanistan and I believe in Iraq, too. 
and the the Russians have have used them too in the in their war in Chechnya I believe they use some of these thermobaric weapons but they basically uh create va- th- uh a fuel vapor uh cloud I think is the way it's an aerosolized fuel vapor cloud that then first that's then set on fire and so it can create a lot more both uh fire damage to to humans especially it can like uh even if you're not in the immediate uh ground zero of it it can sort of suck the air out of your lungs and potentially kill you by just, uh, by, uh, losing oxygen. Um, but, uh, but also a lot more, uh, uh, overpressure, uh, force in terms of the pure physical destructive force in terms of these weapons. So those are being moved in. Now it's, it's hard to know whether this is a, a just a threat or whether they're intending to actually use them in Ukraine. Um, so th- that's some of the stuff going on in terms of the what might be called the kinetic warfare dynamics right now. But uh, what I'm also paying attention to and which I'm, I'm really even more concerned about potentially in terms of escalation is the question of false flags and cyber. And those are two different things. One of, one of them would be false flags. There's certain strange indicators uh, in terms of the setting up of a situation inside of Russia of potential false flags. For example, there was a, a document that was issued by the Russian Ministry of Health a couple of days ago that got put out that indicated that Russia was anticipating a massive medical emergency and has ordered health organizations to immediately identify medical staff ready to relocate and work. Now that could mean that could be directly related to the the front lines of their Ukraine invasion, but it could also hint directly at something like the setup of a massive false flag, something like a dirty bomb that would be then to be blamed on on Ukrainian uh, forces or Ukrainian allied forces of some sort. Remember this is exactly how Putin really rose in power was the usually unacknowledged by large portions of the, the alt media left, especially and definitely by the sort of Trump MAGA alt right. Oh, they almost never talk about this of these, these false, these are pretty obviously false flag bombings done by the highest levels of the Russian uh, deep state in terms of uh, apartment bombings. And then that, that was then used to escalate and launch the uh, Putin's uh, war dynamics against Chechnya. Yeah, and I always uh, I always come back to this because it's important, like you said, that rise of Putin. And I come back to this a lot because it's very important, the, um, the dynamics of how even going back to Russian state media, not talking about like September 11th, and a lot of the roots of like the global war on terror outside of just like an American perspective is uh, that you know, Putin directly rose to power off the back of fight waging a popular war against um, these uh, this is mu- primarily Muslim population in Chechnya um, off the as a result of the um, apartment bombings, and then goes in the New York Times and writes an op-ed about asking Americans how they'd feel Muslim terrorism and all this. Imagine um, building your 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 landmarks being hit and all this. As I said, sound like a hybrid of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and George W. Bush two years before September 11th. But I, mean, it's, I think it's very important to constantly go back to that, and also not nearly enough discussion about it in the 
you know, establishment American media, and maybe this comes down to the, uh, you know, not wanting to sound Alex Jonesian or whatever at that press conference a couple weeks ago or, um, or whatever. And there's people who think we're not supposed to talk about this because Americans can't talk about false flags of our own government's actions. But you never hear, like, uh, you mentioned earlier the book uh, Blowing Up Russia by Alexander Litvinenko. He ends up poisoned, and there's been no serious inquiry opened up on, like, the, uh, the roots of what brought this um, to power and how it relates to the once again, the intersection of our own corruption as far as um, foreign policy goes and this um, the continuity in terms of like waging this um, waging this dynamic that never should have been uh, waged in the first place on the global level, what we know is this global war on terror. So. Wow, Greg, the, the, your point about the the U.S. lines and the the limitations of the U.S. position really now just came clear to me because of you pointing that out of this. This thing that was we should this should be returned to too about how this was like made a big splash uh, in the media and social media uh, when when one of these uh, you know main State Department reporters was accusing the State Department uh, American State Department uh, spokesperson of engaging in Alex Jones level uh, rhetoric in terms of the U.S. intelligence putting out assertions that the one of the ways that Putin was going to get himself to war in Ukraine as uh, someone like uh, what was the, that infamous quote from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy by Patrick Clausen during the Obama years of how we can get an American president to war with Iran, that this was then being then partially exposed in live time by U.S. intelligence. Uh, actually, one of the, I think one of the best usages of American intelligence that I've ever seen, which is uh, using the potential of covert truth, putting it out there before things happen. Okay. That actually, if, if, if U.S. intelligence had done that uh, in, before the Iraq war in relationship to certain potential information terrorists at the highest levels inside of the U.S. government, maybe those elements of the U.S. Uh, intelligence community and um, um, the large consensus of the analysts uh, against this, the whole justification for the American invasion of Iraq, that that could have then been, if they'd gone public with those kinds of things at that time, obviously much more difficult to do it about your own uh, government and uh, potential uh, information terrorists uh, in your own government, but they could have, that's the kind of thing that could have stopped the Iraq war uh, before it happened, or at least destabilized it in certain ways. And I believe that, that, that those announcements in by, by the state department and uh, out of the U S intelligence uh, establishment probably did help destabilize some of the approach of Putin's approach here and made it more difficult, made this whole thing more difficult in terms of destabilizing his information uh, field. As usual, it would be, I can imagine where there would have been, there would have been some sort of staged event that would have been taken very seriously and pushed real hardcore through the so-called alt media in the West. And it would have been seen as a justification, which is why now that because Putin is obviously facing certain domestic threats, it looks like there there's there's growing uh, domestic sentiment against his war. There's this is uh, you know this is a 
these are neighbors at some level. So there's that issue. People are now having to run to the ATM to try to get some money out before uh, Russia is cut off from the uh, international financial system. There is Putin's highest level military aides and and officials are obviously getting concerned. So this point... Putin obviously already lost the chance to be able to stage something for international consumption that would be credible. But now this is why I think there's this deep danger of a domestically oriented false flag, which is really what those apartment bombings sought to do. And they effectively did do, as you pointed out, Greg, the the parallel with Bush is that Bush, for example, in his first year as president, was was down way down in terms of the the way that the American people saw him in the polls, real low. And then he after 9-11 goes up to over 90 percent support. Putin, what I've seen was four percent, four percent of the Russian people were uh, supportive of Putin when he first entered into power. And then after the apartment bombings, it went up to a to a massive something 40, mid 40 percent, which then was enough to um, support him in his move to escalate the war uh, on 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 Chechnya. But uh, one last thing that I I forgot about, Greg, that you uh, sparked my understanding of was that. This, the fact that the State Department did not immediately respond to the reporter by saying, and Putin and Russia has a historical background of staging false flags, even against their own people on their own land in order to escalate this exact same kind of uh, neighborly invasion in terms of Chechnya. Uh, that and and that shows that they, there is some kind of in a similar kind of way that we we're talking about about how RT and Sputnik Radio is Russian state media obviously have certain kinds of lines that they will not go in relationship to even exposing the American uh, false flag uh, terrain, including nine eleven. That there's something around the American government that has its own lines that it can't st- state the obvious in terms of the credible background here, even when they're being, uh, you know, accused of gaslighting the public. And these these kinds of things, they could have pointed to uh, uh, Litvinenko and his book, and 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 there's tons of mainstream uh, writing on on the on the apartment bombings and the, and the Russian false flags and all of that. And they didn't mention it at all to this day. It hasn't been put out by any uh, American official uh, in relationship to this, even though it's so obvious, immediately relevant to this moment. You're absolutely right. And um, I was thinking, as you mentioned, the, um, the, the position of actually putting floating out there the possibility of a false flag and that would seem if you're correct about that 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 seems to maybe catch like uh some of the russian elements off guard in terms of like uh in terms of plans and all this that that would be a direct contradiction to this narrative that like you know putin's capitalizing off of american weakness or whatever which might actually be true there is an element i think of like chaos in our own system that uh probably is being taken advantage of but this idea that like oh you're you're he's just He's just benefiting. I'll talk about this when we get into the media propaganda aspects of this, uh, the narrative around this. Um, oh, he's just benefiting from American weakness and all this, blah, blah, blah. When actually that would actually be a step of strength. And then the combination of like a step of actually like actually being in a position of strength to point out like, you know, telegraph this before it could happen. And then, of course, then you have the um, the drawback to that, which is our own um, obvious glaring weakness, to say the least, Um 
of elements within our own system of an inability to speak um, with any sort of like clarity or serious honesty about like the nature of like false flag terrorism, et cetera, and these types of events that um, are used to these catalyzing events that September 11th was called, obviously, and uh, the lead up to it, um, and the inability to really clarify that either from a Russian perspective or an American perspective. And that's because ultimately of like, there's mutual like compromise there in terms of like, almost like exposing your own hand and your own complicity in addition to what other people are doing. And so a combination of a position of strength, which could have actually been elaborated on and made stronger if you're correct about this by pointing out, well, there's a history of this and that wasn't done. Yeah. And looking more at this announcement, this document from the Ministry of Health, I, I do get concerned about where this potentially goes that this has the feeling of not being about getting ready for something that, that uh, something, an act of war in Ukraine or something like that, or some kind of military pushback in relationship to the Ukraine invasion. But this, the, who they're calling for, including infectious disease specialists and uh, radiologists and their pediatric surgeons. And they're calling for like all, all these doctors to be ready for something so who knows, but I, I'm a little bit concerned about that. And then the other side of this, I just want to then talk about, about concerns of escalation is sure there's nu nukes and that escalation is always uh, in the background and more and more uh, front and center now with, uh, with U.S. NATO versus Russia sort of shaping up in this way. That's obvious. There's always, you know, that, that was the whole Cold War and uh, you know, decades of that kind of hair trigger issue. And there were times where things got close uh, and, and the wrong move by a single person at certain moments could have escalated into potential global thermonuclear war. So the, it's not like those are not, those are very serious uh, issues and those are serious threats. However, this kind of escalation in terms of nuclear readiness has happens. It's happens fairly regularly at, at, in terms of certain kinds of things that happen. For example, we'll go back and look at September 11th. There's this whole nuclear umbrella component that I've mentioned before surrounding, uh, sur surrounding September 11th, both on the American side where there's STRATCOM and there's nuclear terror drills by the Department of Energy's nuclear bomb squad where they're in the European theater uh, the nuclear emergency special operations team, I think they nest uh, out of the Department of Energy there out of the country for the first time in three years. But also, like I pointed out, STRATCOM and Global Guardian and the highest levels of U.S. nuclear forces were on doing drills of nuclear readiness uh, operations at the very same time as September 11th is unfolding. And then uh, Putin in, in these uh, interviews with Oliver Stone even talks about how the very next day, so I guess September 12th, that Russia had high level uh, nuclear security, new nuclear security uh, drills that they were uh, running too. So there's a whole component uh, of, of September 11th that has a nuclear umbrella to it too. When then you go, go look at Ground Zero and the, the, what's going on with um, Israeli military intelligence and the long-term uh, exfiltration of uh, American nuclear pits, there's a whole background there that we will continue to uh, aim to unpack. But that is exists. 
what does has not really had much history is the question of cyber cyber attacks cyber escalation and uh, about a month ago we maybe a month and a half ago we did a show where we talked about specifically what's being um looked at and sort of articulated in relationship to potential cyber the cyber pandemic the cyber drill, a global cyber drill that that Israel looks like was hosting uh, and leading, and there's leaks out of the White House about there's a divide in terms of potential American cyber response, aggressive cyber response in terms of certain Russian actions. And so we're still in a realm where we haven't really digested the, the solar winds uh, hack just not that long ago that ha- was very much looked like it had a at its core a Russian component. And yet it was as many of these major hacks are done, they're done through Microsoft. So remember Microsoft Israel, the Jedi cloud, the long term relationship of Microsoft with uh, with Israel. As we pointed out before, Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz's uh, justification or uh, excuse making for being incredibly accused by uh, Epstein Maxwell victim uh, Virginia Jufre Roberts of it wasn't at me, Alan Dershowitz, the the notorious uh, Israeli deep state lawyer uh, who was actually seen by her and others. It was actually the uh, former chief technology officer of Microsoft, Nathan Mirvold, and the guy who really got the uh, escalated, especially surrounding September 11th and the turn of the century, uh, the escalation of of Microsoft in relationship to Israel. Now, even putting aside the deep Bill Gates relationship with the Epstein-Maxwell network and, and Israel in general. So that's still hanging out there, that, that, that solar winds, which looks like it went everywhere in the American government and the fortune 500 corporations. Basically it looks like almost all of the, the sort of even regional justice U S justice system components had their emails taken over by it. It looks like, um, and that, that the way that it looks like it was delivered was via, uh, Microsoft, their Microsoft's newly acquired, um, service desk component potentially which was at once again similarly to the uh the question of uh Autolom, uh which was co-founded by uh Talpiot program veterans unit 8200 israeli military intelligence veterans were then brought into microsoft to head up their azure cloud app security in the immediate years in the run-up to this unexpected awarding of the Microsoft, the contract for the newly created Pentagon cloud uh, uh, proposal um, that Microsoft had just acquired this, uh, this Israeli company to handle their service desk. The, uh, the sort of the front, the front desk at the hotel, for example, might be one way of thinking about it in terms of other, maybe more human, human intelligence kinds of operations. Uh, and I can't remember the name of that Israeli company, but um, people can go back and look at our show on the uh, on solar winds. So this is now sitting in the background. So I want to just finish up this thread of my thought in terms of the potential of danger, even here directly uh, in in the United States, for example, 
uh, of escalation and where this could all go um, by reading a very brief passage from a book by Nicole Perlroth, who is the New York Times, a cyber reporter, I believe. It's titled, This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. Now, obviously, this being a New York Times reporter and a mainstream kind of book, there is what's obviously missing here is a deep state analysis and most specifically a, a much stronger, more accurate, more deeply honest analysis of Israel's involvement in this whole situation. Now, there's tiny little touches on it, but that obviously is uh, not not there, which is usually the case when we're dealing with these these mainstream uh, narratives around these very big issues. And at the same time, some of the basics uh, of the reporting here are crucial to consider. So I'm going to go to, um, this is an immediately following, and we will follow up with uh, the assessing the background of Russian cyber uh, operations, even in Ukraine specifically, which are deep. And and massive, actually, uh, and and have uh, and have been part of this current invasion operation, too. But we won't go directly into that right now. I just want to read this specific uh, passage um, from page three seventy nine, which is a t uh, the the chapter is titled "The Backyard." Uh, in this is how they tell me the world ends by Nicole Porroth, the cyber weapons arms race quote. I had always been warned we were headed for the mushroom cloud. In fact, behind all the fast-breaking stories I'd been tracking, the election meddling, the disinformation, China's commercial trade theft and creeping surveillance, the coming train wreck from Iran, I'd been covering one story that seemed to foretell the worst. Those calls I started getting years ago from DHS, the ones warning that Russia was penetrating our energy networks, our grid, well, as our country dithered back and forth on the quote-unquote Russian hoax, the reality was that Russian hackers were up to something far worse. Unquote. I just want to mention that this, remember, this is one of, this was one of the big talking points of the 11 9 uh, uh, deceivers, the uh, Trump-Russia it was a hoaxers uh, kind of people, the same people that uh, ended up being so wrong, obviously wrong, maybe deceptively wrong about Putin's invasion of Ukraine. They would always make fun of this Rachel Maddow report. People like I'm thinking of like people like Jimmy Dore and Glenn Greenwald and Aaron Maté and Max Blumenthal, people like that. They would always make fun of this report that Rachel Maddow did on the potential dangers of 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 Russian cyber hackers inside of the American power grid and what the potential implications of of all of that were and they're like this is just fear mongering and there's nothing to it it's just like the entirety of Trump Russia it's a big conspiracy theory hoax okay so this is actually the actual background reporting behind uh behind uh, what they all dismissed as a quote unquote hoax okay all right, back to page 379 of This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race by Nicole Perlroth. Quote, I suppose it's fitting that I would get the call on the 4th of July. 
I'd been driving through the Colorado Rockies that holiday weekend in 2017 with my husband and our dog when my phone rang. Quote, they're in, unquote, the voice on the line told me. Quote, they're fucking in, unquote. I told my husband to pull over and let me out. My source had gotten his hands on an urgent DHS FBI alert. It was meant solely for the utilities, the water suppliers, the nuclear plants. The bureaucrats were trying to bury it on a holiday weekend. And as soon as I got eyes on it, I could see why. The Russians were inside our nuclear plants. The report didn't spell it out, but buried in its technical indicators, analysts had included a snippet of code from one of the attacks. The code made clear that Russia's hackers had breached the most alarming target of all, Wolf Creek, the 1,200-megawatt nuclear power plant near Burlington, Kansas. This was no espionage attack. The Russians were mapping out the plant's networks for a future attack. They had already compromised the industrial engineers who maintained direct access to the reactor controls and radiation monitors that could affect the kind of nuclear meltdowns the world had only witnessed in Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima. This was Stuxnet. Only it wasn't the United States doing the hacking, it was Russia. And the goal wasn't to stop the boom, it was to trigger one. The Russians had been shamelessly meddling in our politics, but when it came to our infrastructure, they had probed and prodded, lurked, fired off their warning shots in Ukraine, then vanished. Now they were inside our nuclear plants, lying in wait for the day Putin yelled, quote-unquote, fire. And if we had any lingering doubts about what the Russians were capable of that July, we had only to look to Ukraine or to the cyber attack they pulled off one month later at Saudi Arabia's Petro Rabig, Rabi refinery. Using zero days, Russia's hackers had leapt from an engineer's computer into the plant controls and switched off the safety locks, the last step before triggering an explosion. The technical hurdles to exact a cyber attack of mass destruction had been cleared. Now we were all stuck in a waiting game to the point of no return. In another joint DHS-FBI warning the following March, the agencies officially named Russia as the perpetrators behind the assaults on our grid and our nuclear plants. Included in their report was a chilling illustration of our new predicament, a screenshot showing the Russians' fingers on the switches. Quote, we now have evidence they're sitting on the machines, unquote. Eric Chien, Symantec's director, told me, Quote, that allows them to effectively turn the power off or, effective sa or effect sabotage. From what we can see, they were there. They have the ability to shut the power off. All that's missing is some political motivation, unquote. And just a little bit more. The report also included a telling timeline. The Russians had accelerated their strikes on America's grid in March 2016, the same month Russia hacked Podesta and the DNC. Eight months later, even the Kremlin was surprised when their man was voted into the Oval Office. But instead of causing them to back off, Trump's election only emboldened them. Under his watch, Russia invisibly worked their way into an untold number of nuclear and power plants around the country. Quote, I would say right now they do not think very much will happen to them, unquote, General Nakasone told the Senate in the days before he was confirmed as NSA director and head of U.S. Cyber Command in May 2018, quote, they don't fear us, unquote. 
As Nakasone assumed his new duties, his staff was still assessing the Russian attacks on our systems. It was not just Wolf Creek. The Russians had also targeted Cooper Nuclear Station in Nebraska and an untold number of other operators whose identities we still do not know. They also discovered that the same Russian hackers that successfully dismantled the safety guards at the Saudi refinery had been doing, quote, digital drive-bys, unquote, of our own chemical oil and gas operators in the United States. Russia was inching, inching dangerously closer to attack. It had long been Nakasone's position that the United States needed to, quote, defend forward, unquote, in the cyber domain. The son of a Japanese-American linguist who experienced Pearl Harbor firsthand, he believed that the only way to prevent the big one was to meet the enemy on the battlefield. It was Nakasone who played a critical role in leading Nitro Zeus, the U.S. operation to plant landmines in Iran's grid. And it was Nakasone who argued that Russia's attacks on our critical infrastructure could not go unanswered. Now, under his new authorities, Cyber Command started plotting its response. Unquote. Now, there's a lot more there, but I I'll leave it. That's from This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends by Nicole Pearlroth, uh, subtitled The Cyber uh, Weapons Arms Race. Oh, man, that's, that's very interesting because um, what is laid out in there, and this would be, I mean, even part of this is true. And as you said, like, there's still another component of this, which is mainly Israeli component that is likely of that would likely based on history and what we've seen would be involved in an operation like this at some level or another. Um, what is being laid out here, like this would make perfect sense to be a consequence of like Trump uh, coming into power is the, uh, is this um, feeling emboldened rather than, and then you think about like, it just makes me think about um, are we, are we seeing people perhaps at the level of say, like maybe, I don't know, I'm just gonna throw a name out there. Maybe a, Maybe an, how are we seeing like Ivan Reichlin's in our nuclear plants and people like that coming through as a direct result of uh, some of the things we're seeing going on now? I mean, this is me just like just just talking off the cuff here, but um, it makes me it really makes me wonder. And then I go back to another aspect, much like we talked about when we talked about uh, when COVID first started, the uh, years and years of like biological warfare propaganda that was in place leading up to um, uh, COVID. Um, you had years and years of this propaganda from these neocons, which might be very, uh, which may have long-term, like, you know, some type of like long-term Russian, Soviet, Israeli nest of some kind, warning about the attacks on the power grid and uh, electromagnetic pulse. And I go back to one of the people who has been a primary um, purveyor of the concerns of that in the pages of uh, World Net Daily, um, WND, uh, Michael F. Michael Malouf, who was, of course, uh, we talked about him before, is now the uh, Russian state uh, propag media propagandist who was in the in leading role in the uh, fight, worms, or uh, intrigues after September 11th. So, I mean, there's uh, the, even the threat of it, like the years and years of like the uh, threatening of um, and the, the, the building of the threat of like, you know, our enemies could attack our power grid and all this. Like it's it's been there and it's very real. And I mean, this would make sense if there was like some kind of uh, infiltration. We it 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 makes sense to me. And it's something that like it's an, uh, just a yet another consequence of like not um, not exploring what the hell's may or may not really be going on to the depth that it needs to be explored through. Yes, because this is this is cyber, and and th this uh, what you're pointing out was all these red herring types 
uh, of talking about North Korean EMP pulse weapons that are going to be exploded in the atmosphere in order to take down the power grid. Now, there's all kinds of arguments about whether that's even really possible, whether that would be successful. Now, what they were pointing away from is the cyber attacks, which you don't even need an Ivan Reichlin in the power plant. You basically, although although there would be a human intelligence component to it, very likely, similarly to the way that Stuxnet was uh, then launched, and it was specifically the Israeli assets who were the ones who then were able to, uh, you know, bridge the air gap in terms of USB sticks and all that in to actually get uh, beyond the air gapped uh, uh, vacuum onto these uh, Iranian nuclear systems. And so she, she, Pearl Roth sort of leaves out that component that she mentions Stuxnet and, and she covers Stuxnet. But at that point, she really should have brought in, oh, this, this Israeli component. It was the Americans and the Israelis that worked together on the on Stuxnet. And there was the NSA is almost really sort of sort of semi overtly accused the Israelis of heightening and escalating the virality of Stuxnet. And and the Israelis were really the ones who delivered uh, Stuxnet. And so then this question of cyber, which doesn't even really need uh you know, a a North Korean EMP or a bunch of Russian actual agents on the ground, but really just needs a way to gap into this jump. Once you're into the system, then you're, you're, you can be operating from pretty far abroad at some level that this actually ties very directly into the U S Israel special relationship. And then obviously the Israel Russia special relationship too, which we will then cover because Israel and UAE and all these other countries that are implicated in the Trump, quote unquote, Russia years uh, are the ones who seem to be very trying to do a both sidesism. UAE uh, ended up, uh, uh, you know, uh, sitting it out uh, in terms of the, the vote against Russia at, at, the, at the UN. Yeah. And Israel and this- is being playing a game too. And when you say that, the special relationship, people always talk about the U.S.-Israel special relationship, as we know, uh, the way it's described. But then also, as you mentioned, it very well could be a Russia-Israel special relationship. And this would be elements of Israeli societies that we've identified and laid out who um, who are, you know, who are not friends of, like, America being in a position of strength and power in the world and who want, and who would like and as we've identified, like there is a obviously ulterior agendas there with the, I would say with like the elements coming out of like the Netanyahu crew in there and in their propagandists here domestically, internationally. And so that's the other special issue. Maybe we should start referring to that special relationship at some point. <laughs> yes. And you're exactly right, because if, if you really analyze the Trump operation real clearly in terms of maybe what you if you look at it from like the what John Swin is uh, uh Reminding us of the of the Vladislav uh, Surkov, the Surkovian postmodern chaos warfare dynamics. It's a big joke at some level in terms of Trump, a quote unquote American strongman. Where if you actually look at like the pictures of him meeting Putin uh, at Helsinki and stuff like that, he does look exactly like the memes that were made of the picture of a dog with a chain being led around by Putin. And and then also if you as we've analyzed over and over and over again. Trump sold as some kind of strong man and outsider and brave guy. He's the opposite of that. He's obviously a physical coward. He's obviously uh, is is a big a narcissist 
who under actual battle uh, conditions would throw everybody, including his own children, likely under the bus, let alone the country. And so there's a big joke there. And so I guess I'll just finish up by saying that we, we will then now go in, in our future episodes, we will then begin to unpack more of the actual Ukrainian political dynamics uh, behind this historical moment, because it then you then have to then deal with the fact that Paul Manafort was on the ground in Ukraine with Rove's IT guru, Mike Connell, who helped apparently steal the 2004 election for George W. Bush, but they actually did it in, in uh, Ukraine and they pulled it off and then they got, and then they got caught by the Ukrainian people who forced a, a, a re-election. But the guy who they, they were running against, who Paul Manafort and his, his, uh, his uh, sort of Putin puppet, uh, guy he was working for with uh, Yanukovych that um, th that who eventually then sort of t takes, you know, he he's then becomes, takes the, uh, the uh, president uh, position. But before that um, you're dealing with uh, the guy who he's running against. Who is, what's his name again, Greg? Uh, Yushchenko, Victor, no, Victor Yushchenko. Yushchenko. Yes. Who himself was uh, poisoned, I believe. And that's what I want to point out, that there's a certain kind of, I believe, that you can read certain kind of like real cold humor in some of these things. And people have noted, and it, it is true that like Trump, Trump himself really, I've never, he doesn't laugh at like, he doesn't laugh. Like there, there's no, there's no actual humor there. Uh, and there's something similar with Putin where there's not actually, you don't really see like some, like some real warm hearted kind of you know, laughing kind of uh, scenario. And so there's this real cold, postmodern, Sirkovian kind of ironic humor that seems to be painted into these deep state uh, operations, which included the poisoning, uh, as you pointed out, of Yushchenko. Remember that it was called the Orange Revolution. And so the Yushchenko, as he was, uh, there was an assassination attempt in late 2004 during the election campaign, he was uh, confirmed to have ingested uh, hazardous amounts of TCDD, the most potent dioxin and a contaminant in Agent Orange. And so there's, I think there's a lot of, you know, deep symbolic sort of postmodern irony packed into that, including the, the fact that the, this is, you know, Agent Orange is known as the uh, American, uh, you know, usage and then this is the orange revolution and then and then uh, so we're going to poison Yushchenko so we have to look then back at that whole 2004 time frame where Manafort is both uh, he's in Ukraine and Mike Connell Rove's IT guru is both in Ukraine and in Ohio uh i guess they successfully stole 2004 on the american people to this day including those who have begun to figure out 2016 to some extent have still not spoken openly and directly about the same network stole 2004 in both the United States and Ukraine. And they've only been, they only got caught in Ukraine is what it looks like. And so there's a whole background there. We'll go into it. There's also the question of, of uh, Alexander Dugan being the key operative for helping set up the youth groups that ultimately became 
the quote-unquote people's republics of, of Donetsk and Luhansk that, that ultimately Putin recognized as the way to then uh, launch the invasion uh, into Ukraine. And so there's a whole uh, area there that we'll go into, and we'll just continue this as, as we move forward. It sounds good, and uh, we'll get into the um, more, some of the specifics of what I've been finding in terms of like the uh, the problematic propagandistic uh, narratives that are being put out there, and it'll figure a lot like into like our own politics with some of these um, narratives. We'll get into that uh, get into that next time, but I guess I would say that uh, maybe one thing we could do here domestically to help uh, maybe um, shed light on this operation is maybe uh, stop trying to make. Let's maybe a little less focus on making a hero out of uh, Dick Cheney's daughter and more of a focus on how how uh, Liz Cheney's father uh, actively benefited war criminals uh, from the stealing of our own election in 2004 in a way that might have been similar to 2016. Yes, yes. Root out the deep state wherever it exists, at home and abroad. That is That is what we need to do. All right, all right. Well, thank you so much, Greg. Okay, and we'll be back next time with uh, to for more. Uh, we'll get into the media propaganda aspects and then some of these other uh, elements that you've discussed here. But uh, we uh, we will be had a pretty good agenda here coming up for the month coming as we've got three uh, multi part series to focus on. So uh, we're definitely going to be uh, having a lot going on here. All right, all right. Thank you, everybody out there. We appreciate you. Until next time, antidote. We are out. Goodbye. Bye.